Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is David Sinclair. But first, we're going to talk about another favorite topic. When it comes to skincare, I am big on exfoliating a lot. I don't really wear makeup when I'm going to the office during the week, but I always wear moisturizer or face oil. And the other thing I do every single morning is drink Goop Glow. Goop Glow is our morning skin super powder. So in other words, it's a powder that you mix into a glass of water. The flavor tastes a little like oranges and a little like lemon verbena. I love it. We designed Goop Glow to be full of ingredients that support healthy, glowing skin. There are six potent antioxidants in Goop Glow. You've probably heard of most of them, like vitamin C and vitamin E, CoQ10, lutein, and zeaxanthin. And altogether, these antioxidants in Goop Glow are meant to reduce the free radical effects of the sun, pollution, and everyday stress. Topical skincare is great, but I personally don't think it's enough, which is why I like adding Goop Glow to my routine. The powder comes in cute little single dose packets. I subscribe to our 30 packs of Goop Glow, so I get my new box every month. And if I'm not drinking it at home, I'll throw a packet in my gym bag on the way to work out, or I'll bring a bunch of Goop Glow in my carry-on when I'm traveling for sure. If you want to try it out yourself, and I highly recommend you do, order one box of Goop Glow today and we'll include a second box on us. Just head to goop.com slash goopglowpodcast and use promo code goopglow at checkout. That's goop.com slash goopglowpodcast and use promo code goopglow to get your second box on us. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound. It's limitless. But we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves. And that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. And I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. David Sinclair is a biologist and professor of genetics at Harvard University. He is also the author of Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to. David believes that we are just beginning to understand the concept of aging. Today, we're talking about longevity and the things we can do to keep ourselves in health span for as long as possible. David explains information theory of aging. Our DNA structures contain information, and then these structures break. It's kind of like scratches on a DVD. More on that later. We talk about cloning, a few fascinating mice studies, what metformin is, and why we should be talking about it. He explains how stress, depression, and complacency speed up the aging process, but how something called biological stress is actually a good thing. David leaves us with this. Only 20% of our longevity and health in old age is genetically determined. The rest is up to us. Throw out everything you thought your life was going to be, because it's not going to be that. In fact, if you live... Every four years you live, you get an extra year of life. Okay, let's get to my chat with David Sinclair. So congrats on the book. I thought it's a fascinating read and everyone needs to read it. I was most captivated by this idea that I had no idea that Barbara Streisand cloned her dog, Sammy. That was a revelation. Yeah. (laughs) It's not that hard these days. We forgot about it, but it goes on all the time, cloning cats and dogs and sheep and monkeys. I wish I knew the original Sammy so I could compare it to the new Sammy. I don't know the new Sammy either, but... Nor do I. We'll have to ask Barbara. (laughs) 
But what's interesting is they're probably not identical. We know already identical twins are not identical. Right. And the difference is the epigenome, the, the part of the cell that reads the genome, and that's a big part of aging. Right. And our, probably our entire lives, right? It really is. Only 20% of our longevity and health in old age is genetically determined. Yeah. The rest is up to us, and we can change that. That's the really great news about the new science of aging. Right. And just to go right into it, this Richard Feynman quote, there's nothing in biology yet found that indicates the inevitability of death. This suggests to me that it is not at all inevitable and that it is only a matter of time before biologists discover what it is that is causing us trouble. So I know that's sort of an older quote, right? But now you essentially kind of understand like the mechanism of aging, if not entirely how to reverse it. Right. Right. So we're, we're in, a, in a new age. It's, I, I liken it to the time when the Wright brothers figured out how to fly, when most people were oblivious that it was even possible to fly, and they're flying around the sand dunes of Kitty Hawk. I wanted to write a book about the equivalent in the aging field. Mm-hmm. We now understand wind flow and air pressure and wing design and motors, and we're putting it all together. And it's going to be more impactful than what the Wright brothers did, in my view. Right. So what is, so if you can sort of briefly take us through some of the maybe now rejected or now perceived as not that comprehensive theories of, of aging from just like, that's how it is, or yeah. like to, so, to, to your theory. Yeah. So Feynman was a smart guy. And you, you, the hardest thing in science is to figure out not what we know, but what we don't know. And uh, he, he was very good at that. And so he's, he's saying that there's no law that says we have to age, is absolutely correct. Most people would say, well, it's an, an inevitability. It's all around us. But what we've, we can see, if we just open our eyes, is that there are many species that live a lot longer than us. We are not at the pinnacle, and they do a lot better job of preserving their bodies. And, you know, you can pull out names like the bristlecone pine or the Greenland shark that can live for hundreds of years, and you might say, well, they're just different than us. We can't make it that long. We can't live 200 years. But then I point to the bowhead whale, which lives over 200. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're 90-something percent the same as us genetically. And so it's doable. It's just that we, we haven't evolved. We're not built to last more than about 100 years. But now that we understand, I think, why we're aging and also why I think we don't have to, we can actually do something about it. Right now, so in, in my book I wrote what my family does and what the science says we can do today to presumably extend our lives five, ten years, maybe more, of healthy life. But what's coming around the corner, even just a couple of years from now, there's things that are already blowing my mind, things that I can see but the public doesn't typically see that I've put into into the book. Yeah. No, there's some deaths. I mean, you call out Gattaca, and it's very Gattaca-like. I mean, so you can you take us through sort of this your information theory of aging and like the digital and the analog and sort of what might be happening to our or what maybe is happening? Yeah. Yeah. So this theory, which I call the information theory of aging, it's pretty new, but we've been doing research for 10 years. So what is it? Well, if we quickly go through the history of longevity, we used to know that being hungry and fit was good for us. Then we forgot about it. We've just relearned that again. But what we didn't know is why these things work. Why does running help? Why does being hungry help? But we figured that out. There are three groups of what we call longevity genes that protect the body and keep the the information in the body preserved. So I'll get to information in a second, but what happened in the 2000s, and I was part of this group when I was young in my 30s, was that the the scientists discovered that there were about seven to eight main causes of aging, and they cataloged them, they drew them in a pie chart. You can see it in just about every talk that a scientist in the aging field gives. And you know, I could list off some, so mitochondrial, so the energy mm-hmm. de- defect, cell, stem cell loss, telomere erosion, most people have heard of telomeres, the end of chromosomes get shorter. There's a whole bunch, there's senescent cells, so zombie cells accumulate in the body. And we as a field said, okay, we've done it. We're, you know, Eureka, we understand aging, and all we have to do is solve each one of these problems, and we'll live a lot longer, healthier lives. And everything's great. But that still wasn't, didn't sit well with me, because the question is, why do they happen? Mm-hmm. Right? We haven't solved that. And in the book, what I talk about is this new idea that it's about information. But there's, it's not the typical type of information that we learned in high school. We know that the main type of information in the cell is genetic which is DNA, which I'm 
saying is digital information instead of zeros and ones that we use for computing. It's four letters, A, C, T, G, chemicals strung out about uh, as much information on a DVD is in each cell of ours, about six feet long of DNA. And we used to think that was the cause of aging, just the loss of those letters, mutations we call these, right? Mm -hmm. But what we've learned is that mutations are not the main driver of aging because we can create a lot of mutations in an animal, say a mouse, and it lives perfectly healthy. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. So what's going wrong with aging? And what I've proposed and what we've hopefully demonstrated over the last 10 years is that it's the other type of information in the cell that we lose as we get older. In fact, we're losing it even from the moment that we're conceived. And that's called the epigenome, the structures in the cell that control how the DNA is read. So, of course, not all genes in our cells need to be switched on. If they were, we'd all be giant tumors. A brain cell needs to turn on just the brain genes and the liver cell needs to turn on a liver cell gene. And it's the epigenome. So what's the epigenome? Well, it's analog information, which is not very good. You know, anyone who's had a cassette player will know analog sucks for copying and... You try to play a tape that's 30 years old, good luck. It's not going to play too well. Or even worse, a record player, uh, a record that gets scratched. But what's actually happening in the cell, literally, is that the DNA strand, which is six feet long, needs to be packaged up. And the genes that need to be on form big open loops. And those that need to be off for the next 80 or 100 years are packaged very tightly in bundles, like a hose reel on a driveway. And I'm proposing that aging is the loss of those structures in the same way that you lose the ability to read a DVD or a compact disc if it gets scratched, because analog information is very easy to lose. And I love the way that that you sort of disc, the is it a sirtuin? Mm-hmm. Sirtuins. Sirtuins. So, yeah. yeah. So this idea that we have, what is it a... What exactly is it? And then I loved the how you drew it out in the book as this idea of, you know, we have our houses and we pay our bills and we tend to the roof. And then we have these emergencies or catastrophes or stressful events. And then they go to firefight and clean up Hurricane Katrina. And then they come back. But in that time, like the house starts to fall apart mm-hmm. and sometimes they get lost. Did right. I just butcher that? No, you did it. You said it beautifully. So the sirtuins are named after a gene in yeast that we worked on 30 years ago called SIR2. And SIR2 ends, we have seven of those genes in our body. And what they do is they control which genes should be on and which should be off, those loops and those bundles of DNA. But the problem for us is that they have another job, and that is that they move away from genes to repair broken chromosomes. And they get distracted. Mm -hmm. But normally what they're doing is they're packaging DNA. Imagine you wrap a present for, uh, for, for someone's birthday. But then when you get a, a broken chromosome, many of those proteins, these are enzymes, these are proteins that are made by genes, but they have to go away and repair this emergency call, which is the, the broken DNA. And not all of them come back to where they belong to reset those loops and, and bundles. In the same way that if you try to re-gift a present that you get for your birthday, you might re-gift it once, but if you keep unpacking and repacking the present, or in this case, the DNA, do that a thousand times and it's going to look the worst uh, present right. you've ever given. Same way our genome becomes unraveled and cells turn on and off the wrong genes and they lose their identity. So nerve cells are not behaving like nerve cells anymore and skin cells actually start to look more, more like nerve cells and they just lose their identity and eventually either they they fail. So that, you know, there's a lot of diseases called, caused by cells failing or they die, the cells can die, we call that apoptosis, or worse, they turn into zombie cells, which we call senescent cells, and they just sit around in the body, causing other cells to age more quickly. But the interesting thing about what we're talking about now is that those loops of DNA can now be measured very accurately just in the last few years, and chemical modifications on the genome serve as a clock. So we can measure those changes in the packaging and repackaging. And I could take your blood, at least today, and tell you how old you are biologically, throw out the candles, that doesn't matter. And uh, and then I could tell you roughly when you're going to die, probably within a few months of that date. Really? Yeah. Scary thought, but it's true. I'm coming to Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really want to know? Well, but I would want to know. I haven't done it yet, but I think I want to be, I want to know. I've done some blood tests that is, estimate my age. Yeah. And we can talk about that later. But but this new clock is really accurate. But I think if, if you know the date of your death, 
you'll change your life yeah. because it is malleable. As I said, 80% of your lifespan is determined by how you live. And I want to talk about all those lifestyle factors, but first, just to what causes the DNA to break? Is it just a function of time or is it emotional stress or is it, what's, mm-hmm. what's that event? Well, there's lots of things and some are obvious like getting chemotherapy. Those are designed to cause DNA breaks and kill the cancer, but they're also going to cause aging in your body, which is horrific. Uh, We need to be able to fix that or reverse it. There are other things that we just can't avoid. To We're just living. So every time a cell divides, it will make a mistake and it'll break its chromosome. Each cell gets a few breaks every day. What that amounts to in our body is a few trillion Mm -hmm. uh, each day. And you can't avoid it, really, just living. And the process of moving DNA around causes breaks. But there are things that make it worse. So smoking will break DNA, x-rays, CT scans, a lot of radi- types of radiation will break DNA. You want to avoid that as much as possible. You know, if you, if you need a scan, don't avoid it. But I wouldn't have x-rays if I didn't have to. So I go to the dentist and they force me to have an x-ray. I'm not pleased about that. But there's also toxins in our environment, so PCBs, plastics. I try to avoid microwave plastics because those are known to break DNA. The yellow paint in those printers that we have at home, Mm -hmm. that dye is also known to break DNA as well. So you can't avoid it. It's part of life. And that's why we're also working on ways to slow this or actually improve the packaging, Mm -hmm. make sure it goes back. But also if you lose the packaging... Is there is there a reboot? Is right. there a backup hard drive of the epigenome so that we can access that and rejuvenate each cell and tell it you're a nerve cell? Go back to being a nerve cell. So this is the wildest part of the book, I think. So can you explain what this like theoret? I know it's all highly theoretical. Unless I'm trying to read your eyes and I'm like, are you reboot? You look so young. Are you rebooting your DNA and turning it on? But but what can you explain sort of this idea of what theoretically might happen? Yeah, so he, here's the good news. It's not theoretical anymore. Uh, we've done it. And so any listener who wants to read the, the science paper that we've published, or, well, we've, we've put online, some readers can, uh, and listeners You've can go to... You've done it in mice? We've done it in mice. So I, I, I want to say that the scientific results, are you can look at it. That's important to me. It's, I'm just not making this up. Okay. So go to what's called bioarchive.com. I'll spell it B-I-O-R. XIV. Okay. And this website has that study. And uh, if you just put my name in, you'll find it. What we're showing, and it's described in the book to some extent, is that this DNA methylation clock, we call it, the clock that I would measure in your blood, that is the epi- marks of the epigenome. It marks the loops and the bundles. Okay. So we can read that and we can do it in, in mice and we can do it in humans. And what we figured out in our lab is two things, how to speed up the aging of that clock. So we have mice in our our lab that we can induce aging. But more importantly, we actually have figured out how to remove those problems on the DNA, remove those what are little chemicals that stick to DNA as we get older. We can take those off. And when we do that, the question is, are you just moving the hands of time back and it's just a clock on the wall, no big deal? Or do you actually reverse time? Mm -hmm. And we've done that experiment And we did it in the whole mouse, but we also did it in a mouse that was old, a few mice that were old. And there's part of the body that we really wanted to rejuvenate, and that was the eye. Reason is that, as we all know, if you damage your eye or damage your spine, it won't grow back unless you're very young. Mm -hmm. So we thought if we could make the eye very young, the nerves would heal, they would regrow, and those mice would get their vision back. And that's exactly what happened. So crazy. And so the idea like on a human scale is that if you had a spinal injury or an eye injury, theoretically, you could you could correct the genome. Well, and we will. So the plan is in two years to treat glaucoma, the okay. pressure of the eye damaging the retina, and go from there. It's a gene therapy right now, so it, it's a fairly involved process, but it's pretty easy. You just have one treatment in the eye, take an antibiotic, and theoretically, you would get your vision back a few weeks later. And then you stop taking the antibiotic, turn off the system. You now reset. Your eye is now 20, 30 years younger than it was a few weeks ago. And then you wait. And if it comes back, you take another course of antibiotics and you hopefully cure your defect. Now, that's the eye, which is still cool. But imagine doing that in the entire body. It's batshit crazy. It is. And, and, <laughs> and a year ago, I would have said it is crazy. 
how is it possible to reverse time? It's impossible. There's no backup hard drive in the body. I was hoping there would be, but we think we found it. There is a memory of how cells should be behaving from our youth. And all of the information to be young again still resides in our old bodies. And the kind of amazing thing, because I know that one of the sort of one of the arguments that you thread throughout the book is a that when you talk to people who are you know in their seventies and in declining health, and you talk to them about giving them more years, nobody really wants them, right? Because being old, particularly in the United States, is hard and full of suffering, right? And endless chronic diseases. But then also sort of this bigger environmental issue of what earth will be like as we all live to 150, which I think is one of the more fascinating arguments that you sort of explore in the book. But what I think is amazing is this idea of, when you think about it, and and you, these are your thoughts sort of repeated to you, but... When we're 40, that's when we repaid the debt to society in terms of its investment in all of us. Is that fair? Right. And then you look at, we all sort of sprint until we're 60, desperate to retire and have a few years of peace before we know we're inevitably going to be decline and go into a nursing home and be a bag that our kids have to haul around. But if you could extend that health span, right, and then you have all these incredibly evolving, endlessly wise elders who are continuing to contribute and and have multiple careers, right? So like you go from, my dad would be a doctor and then maybe he would go into teaching or he'd go into the developing world and practice because he wouldn't feel like he's racing against a clock. Like maybe we can solve some of these Mm -hmm. major problems. Is that fair? It's really fair. And that's what uh, people who read my book come away telling me they, they've changed their view of their life, mm-hmm. that we think we know what our life looks like, that you get a, a few good years at the end and that's it. So everyone's in a panic to try and get things done and save up. But once you read the book, you realize that it doesn't have to be that way. There's lots of people who are already doing things that will very likely make them still able to play tennis in their 90s. Mm-hmm. My father is one of those people who dramatically changed his life. He was he retired at late, in his late 60s and was thinking, I'll be dead by 75 like all my other relatives. And uh, he, he's now 80 and feeling like he's 20, running around the world and climbing mountains with his grandkids to see the gorillas last month. And his whole view on his life has changed. And he's now started a new career. He's passing on his wisdom to his grandkids and hopefully his great-grandkids. Enjoying life, he's so much more positive. And that's, that's the message of this book is that throw out everything you thought your life was going to be because it's not going to be that. In fact, if you live, every four years you live, you get an extra year of life. Hmm. That's, that's how fast technology is going. And that's even without this new discovery that there's a backup hard drive of our bodies, of our youthfulness. That changes the game completely. So we may be thinking we're all going to be dead 75, 80 and, and in, in nursing homes. But it doesn't have to be that way at all. And my father is a good example of, of that. And I want to talk about what your father's taking and the sort of lifestyle modifications, because I know that that is, I know we'll never know, right? But that that's potentially impacted how he feels. But first, when do you think like resetting our DNA, like when do you imagine that that will become something that's widely available? And then let's talk about how you eat, what you take how you keep your body cold and all of those other sort of stress-inspiring events that increase longevity now. Yeah. Well, when is when is the science fiction going to come true? Well, in mice, it was really easy. It's actually, it was easier to reverse aging than it was, than it is to cure cancer. That's what's crazy about aging. It's not that hard once you know what's going on. So I'm very optimistic. And, and it's not just me. There's hundreds of scientists now around the world working on this, probably 20 companies with molecules they're working on or treatments that will truly slow down aging, they think and I believe. So it's coming. And there's a company I was just uh, listening to yesterday. I was in Washington. And they have a molecule that's in the last stages of clinical trials that looks great, that reverses many aspects of aging in the elderly. So, And there's already molecules, we'll talk about those, that yeah. are on the market that, that we think slow aging. The true aging reset, so the future that I paint in the in the book, which is coming. It's not. It's it's like asking the Wright brothers, when will we be having a commercial jet? Well, it's happening. It's going to happen. 
I don't know, they wouldn't know when we were going to go to the moon, but they knew that we were going to go. And I can say the same about slowing aging. That gene therapy, we'll do a clinical trial in two years. We'll know in a matter of months if it works. That drug hopefully will be available five, six years from now. That's typically how long it takes from a standing start where we're at. Assuming everything's safe, it does look good so far. But widely used, you know, gene therapies are not easy. You could, you know, imagine a world, you could make a movie where people inject themselves with this virus that we have. We could, go, You could come to my lab at Harvard tomorrow and we could inject ourselves and start taking <laughs> antibiotics to turn it on and we could see what could happen. Sounds like a party. But there are regulations uh, that you have to deal with and, and it's still unsafe and you could cause a tumor and that would be the worst. We don't think so, but we've got to test it. So that's a long way of saying the technology will come. Mm -hmm. It's probably a decade away for most patients. There'll be a lucky few, if it works, that will be in the clinical trials. Uh, please don't write to me and get in a clinical trial. I don't, I don't, don't hold the it. gates to the <laughs> clinical trials, usually because I'm a co-owner of the, the company that's funding it. I put my money behind these, these clinical trials, so I have to separate that. Right. But yeah... When is it really coming? We are working very hard on finding molecules. What I mean by that is natural or, mm -hmm. or unnatural molecules that you could rub on the skin to truly reset the age of your skin or to take as a pill that would truly reset the age of the entire body. And there's a, about four of us in the world that are doing this, whether the reprogrammers, and uh, we're going to hopefully bring the whole world along with us because it, it's now the most exciting thing in my view, in the entire biology, the science of biology. Yeah. So I know in, in the toolkit now, there's fasting. I know you're friends with Longo and, and so the either fasting mimicking diet or skipping a meal or intermittent fasting, anything to sort of trigger autophagy, right? Like the cells consuming dead cells. Are they consuming the zombie cells? Is that what happens with that, fasting? And also, so the misfolded and old proteins in the cell get digested. Okay. Normally they sit around, but you can get rid of them if you go hungry. Yeah. But there's another thing that Volter uh, stressed, but maybe the message didn't get through. These longevity genes, like the sirtuins we talked about, yeah. they are turned off by sitting all day and eating a lot. And they're turned on by exercise and being hungry. Mm. And so if we want our bodies to fight disease... You have to tell them or at least trick them into thinking there's adversity, that we're under threat. So how do you do that? You, you lose your breath on a treadmill. The body goes, whoa, you know, we have to run out away from this saber-toothed tiger. You go hungry. Whoa, we might run out of food. Or you eat plants that have been stressed out. Mm -hmm. And then those signals, those chemicals in the plants, you actually get a signal that tells your body, whoa, the food supply might be running out. Turn on those longevity genes. And what they do is protect us against those hallmarks of aging I was talking about. There's eight of those, or seven or eight, depending on who you ask. But more importantly, they also stabilize the epigenome. Mm. So getting back to the compact disc or the DVD analogy, the scratches that occur on our DVD of life in each, each cell, by exercising, dieting, taking, eating the right foods, it slows down the accumulation of those scratches so that the cells can read the genes the way they should for much longer. And we need to do that because we don't have reprogramming yet. Mm -hmm. But until that happens, we need to slow this whole thing down. And I would imagine, I mean, I know people talk about stress and they liken it to constantly being scared of a saber-toothed tiger, but I'm assuming that there's probably a distinction between actually physically stressing your body and just being stressed 100%. out. hundred percent. No, be, being, being depressed and stressed mentally is not going to make you live longer. It'll do the opposite. There's lots of inflammation that comes. Cortisol is bad. I mean, a little bit of tension in your career is great. Uh, yeah. I can speak as, as one who <laughs> wakes up every morning with a certain amount of worry, but you don't want it to be chronic. Mm -hmm. But what I'm talking about, unfortunately, it's the same word in English, and what I mean is biological stress. A better word for it, which is not as common, is hormesis. Mm. And hormesis means anything that doesn't kill you makes you live longer. And so we like to feel happy. So we like to eat sugar, we like to eat fat, we like to be full, we don't like to run, a lot of us. But that's the worst thing you can do for your body because your body becomes complacent and says, hey, no threat, no problem, I'm not going to waste my energy on burning fat, I'm not going to waste my energy on stabilizing the epigenome and living longer, I'm just going to let let what come. I'm going to coast. Yeah. Right. And then I know you're a massive fan of metformin. Is that fair? Um, I'm, I'm a... <laughs> I'm a convert based on the data. 
and um, and an aman, which is nad, right? It's a NAD or NAD booster, yeah. NAD booster. And NMN, and I think it was, is it one of your lab tech technicians whose mom reversed her menopause, like suddenly started getting her period again with MNMN? Well, it's a story from the lab. For all my colleagues listening, this is not a clinical trial. This is an <laughs> anecdote, but all science begins with stories. What we were discovering in the lab was actually, and this is work that we're likely to publish soon, it's that we treated old mice with NMN, female mice, and we noticed that they became fertile again. Really old mice, like 60-year equivalent, 16-month-old uh, mice. And that goes against everything you'll read in biology. We are taught that women run out of healthy eggs as they get older, same with mice. And here were these old mice getting pregnant, and the kids were, the offspring were very healthy. We've now tested it in a small study in horses and had similar results. We don't know exactly how it's working. One of the things we notice is that the eggs, instead of having their chromosomes ripped apart in those old animals, they actually, the chromosomes don't get ripped apart. They're actually, in the late stages of egg formation, beautiful chromosomes. And that, if anything, if this is right, the kids that come from this treatment, eventual treatment, will actually have less chance of having Down syndrome because the ripped chromosomes are really what cause Down syndrome. But yeah, what, what does this mean? Well, we, we have a company in Australia that's hoping to develop a product to help in vitro fertilization treatment to make beautiful eggs. Imagine you, you go in, your doctor gives you a, a pill for a month, harvests eggs, and they're beautiful. Instead of having half of them with chromosomes ripped, mm -hmm. they're all beautiful. We see that works in mice, still a long way from humans, but possible. And then uh, we also hope that eventually we can do away with some IVF. Mm. Women that are perimenopausal or postmenopausal, maybe we can reverse that and allow them to have kids later in life. And some women have premature menopause, and we, we also want to be able to help them as well. And the idea is, well, I don't know. I read the book, and I was like, give me some goddamn metformin, but can I have some? I know you can't prescribe. Oh, well, you, you can get it. There are, there are countries that, that you can just get it from the pharmacy because the World Health Organization has declared metformin an essential medicine for humanity. Interesting. Yeah, it, and it it's comes from the, a lilac? French lilac plant, right. Goat's rue, uh, it's also known as. But this molecule has been around since the 1970s and given to hundreds of millions of people for type 2 diabetes. And it's been shown to be as safe as just about any other drug. It's not very safe on the stomach. I, about 30% of us, myself included, feel queasy when we take it. So you can s prevent that or at least mitigate it by eating it with food or raising your dose. But I'm, I'm not diabetic yet and I, I take metformin. So the question is, why would I do that? Yeah. Why would I take a drug or a, a, a compound from a lilac if I'm not sick? Well, here's the thing. There's a few answers. One is, I was going to get diabetes. There's no question. I've got the genes. I've got the family history. I've got Ashkenazi Jew genes that are terrible. They're not all terrible, but the, the ones I inherited for diabetes are. And everyone in my family gets diabetes. My 80-year-old father had diabetes until he went on our family program, which included metformin. So there's that. It was coming anyway. And why wait till you get a disease? Why wait till you click over that threshold before you start treating a disease that's preventable? Right. Yeah, there's that. But also metformin has been shown in studies of hundreds of thousands of people to seemingly protect them against not just type 2 diabetes, but all other causes of disease, all other diseases, actually. And the list is, is long, so it's cancer preventative. It'll prevent Alzheimer's disease, seemingly, frailty, and heart disease. So when you look at those data, and there's a number of papers which I do cite in my book. There's a lot of citations you can look up if you want to get into it. When you look at that and you say, how could I not want to take metformin? It costs two or three cents a day. There's no risk of any harm, or at least it's one in 10,000, which is extremely low. And I know what's going to happen if I don't try anything. It's, it's miserable. I mean, I don't want my kids to have to spoon feed me and wipe my bottom in a nursing home. It's my responsibility to be healthier for longer for their sake. It's not about being selfish. Yeah. So do you think, and why is it that in this country, something like metformin isn't, I mean, I feel like I hear about it because I work at Goop, but I don't know that it's widely known or recognized. Is it, and, and you talk about this a fair amount in the book too, like are, that while the U.S. 
spend it's 17% of our GDP yep. on healthcare and we are responsible for 57% of, of all medicines all, all uh -huh. medicines and all developments yet we're like 25th in terms of health or whatever that yeah, it's index 37th is. as 37th. last time I looked according to the World oh, Health great. Organization That's even better so 37th and 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 you sort of say part of it is that because we're so focused on I guess in the functional world, you'd say like you're, we're so focused on symptom treatment and not root cause. And in your world, the symptoms are heart disease, cancer, and all of these typically chronic diseases that come with aging instead of focusing on aging itself. Yeah. What I call whack-a-mole medicine yeah. in, is practiced in this country. It's wait till you get sick, then treat it with a drug, push the patient out the door, hope that it works. And if it works, great. Wait till they get sick again, come back, hit it again with another drug, repeat until failure. Mm -hmm. That's how we deal with diseases. But why not treat the cause of all of those diseases? And most people don't think about it. And most doctors don't think about what causes these diseases in the first place. Why we fall off a, a cliff is just as important. To, it's also important to know how we got to that cliff in the first place. And that's totally. aging. Best example I can give you is my mother died of lung cancer a number of years ago. And she was told by me and many others, don't smoke. Right? And we know that smoking is bad for you. It raises your chance of lung cancer by five times, fivefold. That's really bad, right? Of course, we don't want people to smoke, especially our loved ones. But what about aging? By the time you get to 70 from age 20, your chances of getting lung cancer have now gone up by 500 to 1,000 fold. So which is more important? to work on, to understand, to slow down. The other thing is if we were to stop all cancer today, not just lung cancer, but every cancer, no one ever gets cancer ever again, how much longer do you think we'd all live on average? I know because I read the book. Yeah, it's, it's less than two and a half years, yeah. two and a bit years. That's shocking and the, it doesn't even make sense when you first hear that statistic. The reason is that all these other diseases that are caused by aging are going up exponentially as well. It's like the, the hurdles uh, in a race are just getting closer and closer together. And even if you make it over one, the next one will get you. Right. And the only way we're going to live long lifespans is to approach aging because we've, we've run out of the, all the other options. We can't seem to cure Alzheimer's by targeting it directly. We've done a lot for cardiovascular disease. We're kind of maxed there. Cancer is getting better, but as I mentioned, it's not going to greatly extend our lifespans. We need a new approach to medicine if we're really going to live the kind of lives that I'm hoping we're capable of. And we know that some people can live to 110, sometimes 120. It's very rare, but we know it's possible for humans. Mm -hmm. So we've got 40 years to play with, even if we don't exceed the maximum known lifespan of humans right now. Right. So take us, so you do NAD, metformin, aspirin, vitamin D, K, not B. I do take B. You do take B. Yeah. You I've... sleep in the cold. Yep. You... Well, not too cold, but no blankets. <laughs> <laughs> you try to consume primarily plants. Right. Stressed ones. A stressed out plant is not one that's worrying. It's actually one that if you take away the, its water or put it in too much sunlight or even let it get a fungus or, you know, heaven forbid, an insect attack, these plants will start to feel stressed biologically stressed and make these xenohermetic healthy molecules. And so when we harvest our plants, I would suggest don't just pick them straight out of the greenhouse. Don't water them for a few days before you pick them, and they're going to have a lot more of these healthy molecules. Interesting. And what am I, And you exercise? Not enough, but I try my best to be out of breath and do high intensity and weightlifting, especially okay. for a 50-year-old male. We, we, we really need to keep going on that. You missed out resveratrol. Oh, yeah, resveratrol. So talk to us about that. Because yeah. I know we all think by consuming probably too much alcohol, we're doing ourselves a good service. But the science vaguely supports that, or it supports that in mice. Well, it supports it more than you might think. There have been clinical trials, even two just this year came out, that showed that it was beneficial in the same way we treated mice. So let, let me tell you a bit about resveratrol. And by the way, if anyone wants to know the full list that Elise was rattling off, <laughs> go to page 302 and read onward. But buy in my the book. book. Don't just stand in the books, the bookstore. And take a photo of it. You could do that, but then <laughs> I you... I did send my parents a photo of it. Did you? But then you wouldn't feel different about your life. I have my own personal 
regime based not just on the science but what works for me but everybody's different and if you don't read the rest of the book you won't know how to modify your lifestyle to suit yourself that's important so resveratrol resveratrol's the polyphenol it's called the chemical in red wine that's thought to be one of the reasons the french have good cardiovascular health despite eating a lot of cheese but what we've discovered in in the early 2000s was that these sirtuin proteins that protect the epigenome and help cells survive longer slow down aging, extend lifespan in mice, maybe humans. Uh, what we discovered was that resveratrol is a really great natural activator of these enzymes. Mm. And at first we started making yeast cells live longer and then little nematode worms, millimeter long, then fruit flies. We worked our way up the food chain basically and got to mice. And we started feeding mice with a Western diet with or without resveratrol mixed in. And the doses were about 250 milligrams, so it's, you know, a capsule a day for those mice. And we also gave it to them with a, a intermittent fasting every other day. We gave it to them in food, normal food, not fat. And what was crazy was those mice still got fat on the Western diet, on the high-fat diet. And we thought, oh, we screwed up, end of, end of hypothesis. But when we looked at, first of all, we, we let the mice age, and they lived as long as the healthy, lean mice that was great. And then when we looked at the mice, uh, when they died and we looked at their organs, they were just as healthy, even though they were eating a, a fat diet. Their arteries were clean, their livers were nice and pristine, as though they'd been running and fasting. So that was the first evidence, first evidence that you could actually mimic caloric restriction or fasting with a pill, mm. with a molecule. That was a big deal. A lot of people have now take that for granted, but at the time we were excited and the world's sales of red wine went up by 30%. Now, I'm not recommending drinking a lot of red wine. In fact, the amount of resveratrol I take each morning with a few spoons of yogurt to dissolve it in would be the equivalent of drinking 500 or so glasses of red wine for breakfast. Oh, wow. So okay. I don't recommend that. Please don't go out and do that unless you want a liver transplant. But my heart's great. I've had it. my heart checked out. It's like a 20 or 30-year-old, so I'm, at least I'm not doing myself harm as far as I know. And in clinical trials, there have been some failures with resveratrol and some successes. And my best guess as to why there are failures is, A, they're, they're not looking at the right group of people. If you treat healthy people, they're not going to get healthier. Mm -hmm. But also, resveratrol is like chemists. So chemists typically refer to really insoluble soluble molecules as brick dust. And anyone who's held up dust knows it's not very soluble. Same with resveratrol. So you need to mix it with food or olive oil. Or in my case, I use a special yogurt that I make for the family. And uh, I don't eat a lot of it. Some people say, well, David, how can you skip breakfast if you're eating yogurt? It's only a couple of spoonfuls every morning. But you need to do that because actually we found that if you just give it to mice with a regular diet, they don't absorb it mm -hmm. very well. And let's go back to that last thing. So we also gave the resveratrol to the mice every other day. And this is a big deal because, first of all, it's, very, it's not very no, well known. Most scientists don't even remember this data. And the other is we're also, also trying to figure out not just what supplement or what food to take, to eat, but when. When is also just as important. And what we discovered was if you take resveratrol every other day with food, you got the maximum lifespan benefit. So here's, here's another take-home message. You don't need to take a supplement every day, probably, but also when you eat is important, mm. just as much as what you eat. And I've now come to the conclusion that, at least now based on reading 10,000 papers, I try to avoid eating three meals a day, and I'm, I'm very happy if I just eat one. Um, and I feel way better than I did when I was always thinking, oh, I can't be hungry. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when you're hungry, it's turning on these longevity defenses. And that's key. You've yeah. got to do that if you really want to live beyond, say, 75, unless you've got very good genes, which most of us don't. So in terms of this, not that everyone needs to be on your exact regimen, but I know your dad is on a similar regimen. Is this something that, like, is this an intervention to think about when you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s? Or mm -hmm. is it, is there no time like the present? Well, I wouldn't recommend it for people in their teens, right. when their bodies are still growing. We don't know the side effects at all, in, and we've never tested it even in our lab on growing animals. Certainly if you're pregnant, watch out. We don't know the effects on, on children. But here's the other thing to remember. The clock of aging begins even when you're young. 
young babies are aging. That's the crazy thing about this clock that we've just discovered the last few years. And then the, the other thing to, to remember is that the longest lifespan extension in animal studies, whether it's monkeys or rats or mice, even dogs, the earlier you start the animals, the better the mm -hmm. effect. So until we have a magic bullet, and maybe it's something that kills zombie cells or it's a reprogramming treatment, until those are ready, the best thing you can do is to start earlier. You know, I never tell people what to do, but I can talk about what I do. Mm -hmm. And what I, I do and what I did is that I started in my 20s to eat healthy. I went on what's called the Okinawa diet, a lot of tofu, a lot of green vegetables, not a lot of satiety. I would mm -hmm. eat very little. Uh, it kind of blew out of the water when we had kids, and that was pizza for dinner more often know, than tell not. Tell me about it. Yeah. Annie's it's, mac and cheese is a real diet yeah. killer. <laughs> yeah. So I got back into it in my late 30s and 40s. But I also I started taking resveratrol in my early 30s and kept adding things and testing myself to see if they were working the way I hoped, and they did. So he, here's the thing. If you're in your 20s, I would modify your lifestyle. I don't think you need metformin. You probably got lots of longevity gene activation already. But in your 30s, that's what I did. I thought 30, you know, I'm starting to feel that I'm not 20 anymore. And so that's probably a good time to start or at least think about it. Yeah, trust me, I'm scheming. But why, so if something like metformin, why wouldn't we all have access to it? Well, that's, that's up to the FDA. And I'm not going to fight with the FDA about it. But it's, it's often historical that drugs end up classified this way or that. The, the big difference, though, is if you modify a natural molecule even by one atom, it becomes often a, a new chemical entity, and then it falls into a drug category, even mm -hmm. if it's only changed by one atom. Now, there's a good reason. If you change one atom, a natural molecule can kill you. So you need the FDA to protect us. But metformin is, is relatively cheap and safe, and so perhaps one day it will be available over the counter. Mm -hmm. Right now, doctors typically haven't heard about the anti-aging effects of metformin. So I hear a lot every day from people who go to their doctor and they ask for metformin. The doctor says, well, you don't have diabetes. This makes no sense. It doesn't even compute correctly. But there are increasing an increasing number of doctors who have read the science. Yeah. It's interesting, too, just in the context of I loved these. I know you had several of these conversations throughout the book, and it's sort of an ongoing push, right, to change the status quo or this idea that you're born, you live, you die. Like, I don't, I don't want to live forever. At this point, I don't even want to live till I'm 80. But I love sort of your arguments against people who say too, like, this is unnatural. Yeah, don't, don't <laughs> give me that. I might get angry. But yet, what, what, what about our lives is natural anymore, really? I mean, yeah. we're, we're here talking in an air-conditioned room with lights and wearing clothes. I flew here on a, on a flying machine in a chair going 900 kilometers an hour, drinking a gin and tonic. <gasps> yeah, that's another story. There, there was a guy making a phone call the whole trip and wouldn't hang up, even though he was told to. So I thought was, that was a, not allowed. It's not. Yeah. But some people don't understand rules. But anyway, occasionally I have some alcohol. Alcohol actually looks decent as long as for a lifespan extension, as long as you don't drink a lot of it. But then there's calories to, to worry about. Anyway, long, long story short, everything that we do as humans is now unnatural. There's nothing. If you say, oh, I'll just eat fruit and vegetables, that's not even natural. There's, there's not, unless you go out and pick it from, you know, pick wildflowers out in the prairie, nothing's natural anymore. Is that good or bad? Well, I, I would argue that would anybody like to go back 20,000 years ago to what's natural? Mm -hmm. What's natural is you can't go for a walk more than 20 meters without getting killed, that you'll freeze to death, you can die from a a plague or or worse we now live in a world that's that our ancestors couldn't even dreamed of this is utopia plus mm -hmm. but does that mean we should stop innovating no we're always as as humans going to make our world better that's what we do we've always done that mm -hmm. even for the last 100,000 years we've been doing that ever since we you know picked up a rock and 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 smashed a shell open and so don't don't give me the argument that aging is natural therefore we should accept it because we've never done that as a species ever. And as we also need to get sort of back in step with nature and or protect, I don't even want to say protect nature because it's like we need to protect ourselves, right, from sort of the environmental disasters that are coming. So what, what do you, just as a scientist mm -hmm. and someone who obviously thinks about this a lot, like what do you see, what do you, how are we going to solve this problem? Yeah, so I think about it a lot, and because my 
I'm mission-driven. I'm not just trying to do science because I find it fun. My mission is to leave the world better than I found it. Mm -hmm. And if I make it worse, there's no point in doing this. I'll stop tomorrow. So my career is devoted not just to creating the solutions to medicine, but finding solutions in society and the global economy and the environment that will allow us to live in a utopian future that will make today look like 20,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we, we will get there. Whether or not we get there in our lifetime depends on how much, you know, how many people get behind this. There's a lot, really, uh, about why this is probably the best thing that we as a globe could do. Mm-hmm. And it's counterintuitive, which is what makes it interesting. It's counterintuitive because you think that if we're all going to live longer, the world will, will be worse, right? It'll cost too much where we're we all going to live. But that's not actually what would happen once you crunch the numbers. And I paint two main pictures in the book. What happens if we're not successful at doing what I'm doing? And that's not pretty at all. We're going to have climate change. We're going to have a lot of old people. And if you think 17% GDP is bad, wait until the number of 65-year-olds becomes a much larger part of the population. Globally, we're, we're screwed anyway because the number of people over 65 has now surpassed the number of babies in the world. And that's never happened in the history of humanity, and it's only going to get worse. Mm. So we need a solution. What are we going to do with all the people that are going to cost a lot, let alone the tragic lives that they'll lead for them and their families? My solution is to delay the diseases, compress the diseases in the period of sickness and frailty into a very short period, hopefully just a month or two. We know that that's what the science is telling us will be the reality, but allow people to be productive. Mm -hmm. My father, instead of being in a nursing home, he started a new career. He's using his wisdom to look over clinical trials. He's teaching people in the community. He's raising my grandkids, helping. That's what the world should be like. And then I said, well, how do we afford all this? He's retired. Well, if we don't have to look after people who are frail uh, with dementia, that's a saving of $10 trillion a year across the globe. That's money you can put towards fixing climate change, having new technologies, educating people. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. And I don't know anywhere else we're going to get that much money to be able to spend on other things. Thanks for listening to my conversation with David Sinclair. For more on David, make sure to get a copy of his book, Lifespan, available now. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. If you could go on a road trip anywhere, where would it be? Anthony. Gosh, you know what I would love to do is a road trip way up in the Pacific Northwest, like, and drive into Canada and just all the way up the coast, but into that area that's really like cold and dramatic and beautiful and that ice cold water and clean air. And I don't know that area very well. So I think, I think that's where I would go. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.